0: Uh, A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. We are live this morning from the Bank of England with Jamana. Steve and I are in our European headquarters here in London. Uh, U.S. inflation eases to its lowest level in two years, giving a boost to the Federal Reserve's war against price pressures. The yuan slides after Chinese inflation also weakens to a two-year low of just 0.1%, with factory deflation deepening.
1: The Bank of England is set to hike interest rates for its 12th straight meeting as inflation remains stubbornly high in double digits. We'll be speaking to the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey at 1700 CET.
2: Disney shares fall almost 5% in extended trade as the House of Mouse sees a decline in streaming subscriptions. But the CEO Bob Iger marvels, get it, marvels at the company's transformation strategy.
1: The cost-cutting initiatives I announced last quarter are well underway and we are on track to meet or exceed our target of $5.5 billion.
2: And the debt ceiling deadlock continues in Washington. G7 finance ministers convene in Japan. We're going to hear from Eurogroup President Pascal Donohoe and the German finance minister Christian Lindner all in the next three hours. Well, I didn't disappoint. It was actually a fascinating piece of data uh, on US inflation yesterday. So I'm going to get into the details on it and then we'll have a little chat about it as well. But uh, thank you, by the way, to the graphics team who've put together a very interesting board. So thank you for that. So we'll go through it. US inflation ease in April to its lowest level in two years. Now, it's quite handy that 5% was expected and it came in at 4.9% because four point, it's like those people who say it's 99p rather than a pound or, or or 4.99 cents rather than five bucks. It sounds so much better, doesn't it? But it's virtually the same price. But anyway, the consumer price index rose 4.9% on an annual basis. Here, I might as well just walk along, seeing as the graphics team has done all this for me. Uh, there you go, 4.9%. Uh, coming in below expectations. Uh, core CPI, which excludes food and energy prices. There's food and energy, uh, or food up 7.7. There's energy up five, or down 5.1, I should say. Very important point. Um, we'll come to the vehicles in a minute. Uh, was 5.5% year on year, with both the headline core CPI uh, up 0.4% on a monthly basis. So that's the headline and the core. Rent prices, very interesting. Rent prices, shelter, here you go, up 8.1%, remain stubbornly high. Uh, as I say, up over 8% on an annual basis. However, grocery stall prices fell for the second consecutive month, with milk prices posting their largest drop since February 2015. Very interesting looking at that basket of goods. So what did the US markets do? Well, actually very interesting. You didn't see any outsized reaction on the Dow. You saw a small rally on the S&P, but a a solid rally on the NASDAQ. And you know how the story goes now. Uh, People looking at the discounted cash flow going forward and then the financing models of the growth sector uh, and saying actually the NASDAQ disproportionately will benefit from lower rates as well, if indeed that is to come, because we all know there is a big bet being placed on the markets For the second half of this year, from July onwards, about rate cuts. And and that is fascinating. At the moment, we're in a range of five to five and a quarter percent. There are a lot of estimates out there now that we're going to be as low as four and a quarter percent, so a percentage point lower, roughly, uh, by the end of the year. So let's, with that in mind, have a look at the Treasuries as well, which uh, you did see both the two, well, in fact, across the curve. So we've gone from the four handle down to 3.9, which means, of course, uh, people buying the underlying as the yield goes down. And it's the same story uh, on the 10-year 344, as opposed to the previous handle, around about 3.5. So what did the dollar do? Actually, let's have a look at this. Did the dollar decline yet again on the back of it? And the answer is not really, actually. When I look at the major pairs here, We are within range of where we were beforehand, pretty much there or thereabouts. So the pound, which has been hitting one-year highs, uh, as people reassess um, what they think of the UK economy, is still trading around 126. The euro dollar still stuck around 110, and the dollar-yen around 134, 135. So no great move there as well. What is interesting is we did see uh, oil prices picking up, actually. So we'll have a look at those. Brent currently trading with a 77 handle. So look, had the big decline, but it's now five bucks Um, above its lows of the last week or so. Uh, And WTI, which has, in recent times, dipped below um, $70, now up to 73 bucks. So moderately volatile within the range. Good morning to you. Uh, Very good morning. How are you? Uh, Okay, okay. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But she's uh, she's
0: out for the next two days, isn't she? she extended is indeed, extended yes. weekend, I exactly. think. Um, so inflation, we need to talk about inflation. And I thought this um, soundbite that we had from Brian Chesky's interview on CNBC is apropos the whole inflation story, really, and how resilient the US economy is. So let's play you the bite, and then we'll talk a little bit about the market reaction to the inflation data. So the AS Airbnb CEO, Brian Chesky, outlining his concerns now around the impact. Impact of higher prices on consumers
3: we're also seeing some pressure in North America on affordability you know I think that with uh, inflation people are more focused on ever on affordability so that's why we're really focused on trying to make sure prices are mod- modulated in North America
0: uh, which is very interesting because I think uh, you know, as they supply uh, shelter for people who are taking holidays and so on and so forth, if they're seeing increased sensitivity to pricing, perhaps that indicates to us we've now got to a point where the American consumer is unwilling to continue either borrowing or dipping into savings to pay the higher prices. The inflation report—I mean, I got the sense that we're probably on the same page here, given what you did at the wall there—that it was a mixed bag and very hard, I think, for. Those those who believe that it was a definitive message about the Fed and the tightening cycle to really argue that case convincingly, because there was evidence, I think, that services inflation is not coming down as quickly as the Fed might like to see. And in some specific areas like used car prices and and shelter and, and even fuel again, there is some evidence here of resistance around pricing.
2: Um, Yeah, all of the above. Again, the echo chamber is alive and well this morning. But but safe to say, the markets... And I I don't mean to be derogatory about my friends in the markets. I spent a long time in the markets myself. But they they, they can really only focus primarily on the the bell curve of distribution of concerns. If you've got 10 concerns, there'll be one that they're very focused on most of the time, maybe two. Uh, And the big concern is inflation. Inflation and rates. Inflation and rates. But the problem is, of course, if inflation comes off... uh, and people are more sensitive to pricing It's probably because recessionary indicators are picking up. So the worry here is we move from worrying about interest rates and inflation to worrying about recession. And, and I'm afraid there are way too many people out there who are just beautifully complacent about the ability to get this so-called soft landing. How many times do we hear about the narrowing of the path to get the soft landing as well? People talk about the narrowed path. It's not implausible, but the path is narrow as well. And I don't think the market is factoring in how tight that path is to having a Goldilocks type soft landing for the US and the global economy the thing that I've been focusing on and I've kind of banged on a little bit about it is what are the commodity prices telling us now the oil prices is of course still trading dramatically below where it was when OPEC cut production OPEC didn't put production on they cut production despite what all of these experts have been saying about the increased demand in the second half of the year copper has been under a lot of pressure iron ore has been under a lot of pressure and I think by and large the the data we've been having out of China, which was supposed to be the great reopening post-COVID earlier this year, it's just been a bit soggy. And the triple R is still uh, incredibly accommodative in China as well. The, The authorities know that it's not quite the the big rally we hope for on both the services domestic side and indeed, of course, on the import and export growth. So I think there are warning signs out there. I'm not saying they're flashing red. I'm saying I don't think the market is appreciating that we're in an amber phase rather than a green phase.
0: And it's good that you mentioned China because we're going there in just a moment. But I think maybe uh, this is one of those stories this morning where you're looking over there at the US inflation number and wondering what it actually means, where really perhaps you should be looking over here at the Chinese data, because actually the Chinese data appears to be implying that deflation rather than inflation could become the more relevant story for the time being. Um, And that obviously has consequences for how we need to think about the ability of that economy to rebound very strongly, because that that, uh, two-way story would imply that we've got something that looks a bit like deflation one, perhaps because the Chinese have got too much of everything because there's excess capacity in the Chinese economy in a lot of key sectors, but two, there just isn't the demand there to mop that up and to accelerate prices. So very, very interesting cocktail that we've got. And as you say, you know that path is increasingly looking like a tightrope for the Fed to land back on, isn't it? Mm. Um, A busy day then on the macro front around the world. Chinese inflation has grown at its slowest rate since early 2021. Here in Europe, the Bank of England will take its next step in its fight against price pressures. To cover off both of these stories, Sam is going to watch the inflation figures for us out of China and Jamana is at the Bank of England. So, Sam, let's pick up with you first. Just how weak were these Chinese figures and what do they tell us about the state of the economy?
4: Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I mean, while the Bank of England is, of course, dealing with that stubbornly high inflation, China has been dealing with the opposite problem for some time now. Its prices certainly have been falling. And so what we saw today was the CPI and the PPI both coming in cooler than expected. We've got the slowest rate in terms of those sticker prices, those consumer prices in around two years. And then when you look at the factory gate prices, those wholesale prices, um, what we've seen is the seventh month of deflation now. So China has now transitioned to what seems to be a bit of a deflation concern now. So when you look at the sticker prices, uh, this, as I said, came in cooler than what the market was expecting. One analyst out with a note uh, just off the back of this data saying that while perhaps this is a good problem to have because it it does certainly help consumption, um, this sort of disinflation could be a bit of a worry because it could mean uh, that it hurts profits at some companies. It could add to some of that job pressure as well at a time when the Chinese economy um, is trying to put more people into work. But of course, with this CPI as well, we do need to take into consideration it is coming off a high base last year. We've got to remember that Shanghai was in lockdown in April uh, 2022. And that is when people were struggling to get groceries, trying to get things like eggs and rice delivered to their homes. And that was really pushing up prices. Um, So when you look at the factory gate. Prices. Moving on to those, uh, this has been really a story of uh, falling commodity prices, but it just really underpins and goes to show this sort of uneven recovery playing out here in the Chinese economy because what we've seen is that the bounce back in consumption just really isn't making its way up to the upstream sectors just yet. Manufacturing is really struggling to keep up with that post-reopening rebound that we've seen, certainly on the services sector side of it. We saw that in the latest PMI numbers, and also we've got this sluggishness playing out in the property sector, so that's no good uh, for things like construction. Then when you've got the core, 0.7%, that is relatively benign. That should keep the PBOC more accommodative if it needs to ease um, of course, but that also is a bit of a problem when the Chinese economy is very much relying on domestic demand to stimulate some of the growth. So there seems to be a debate going on right now as to whether the PBOC will ease or could ease particularly given that credit demand is fairly strong um, but of course we continue to see savings are up as well it just isn't transitioning isn't being unleashed in terms of some of that consumption so as you say Jeff it's a bit of a cocktail uh, going on in the Chinese economy at the moment back to you.
2: Thank you very much indeed for that Sam let's go to Jumana who's at the Bank of England and the problem for the Bank of England is we're not seeing a 4.9% inflation Jumana it's pretty much double that at the moment.
1: Yeah, uh, that's exactly it, Steve. If you look at that March headline print, 10.1 percentage points, uh, that's got to be a little bit troublesome for the Bank of England policymakers here, which is the reason why the markets are expecting them to go for a 25 basis point hike. This would be their 12th consecutive rate hike in a row. People often forget this, but the Bank of England actually did start hiking before other of the major central banks. The issue is they were going in very, very small increments. But today of course if they do hike interest rates, it will take them to four and a half percentage points now the question is where do they go from here obviously and back in february one of the major announcements out of the bank of england is that they were going to do away with forward guidance and move to a more data dependent model which means those numbers like that headline inflation current coming in at 10.1 percent have even more weight when it comes to their decision making and it's not just the headline inflation print. if you look at core inflation in the uk it's still sitting at 6.2 percentage points. I, I just a few moments ago tweeted up a chart, which I think is quite notable because it shows that UK core inflation is still running much higher than the US and, and Europe. And you hear the language that is coming out of the Fed. They're indicating perhaps that they might be going for towards a pause. The European Central Bank, the other side of the equation, uh, insisting that they still have more to do and they've got more room to cover, more ground to cover in their interest rate hikes. Well. UK core inflation is still even higher than Eurozone core inflation and it will be very interesting to see whether the Bank of England governor today, Andrew Bailey, actually does guide to further interest rate hikes similar to what Lagarde did or whether he's going to start thinking about a pause similar to uh, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell. Now, one other thing you want to watch out for as well is those growth forecasts. And I remember I was standing here back in November of last year and at the time many market participants were a bit spooked by what the bank of england had published namely uh, five consecutive quarters of a recession of negative growth was forecast last november if you look at where things stand today well that recession hasn't really transpired they still have a minus half percentage point growth profile penciled in for twenty twenty three they will likely upgrade that and they will likely upgrade it to zero percentage points and therefore say that there is no recession that is yet to happen in 2023. That's probably going to be the headline here. But the bottom line is the growth picture is looking slightly less bad and the inflation backdrop is still very, very strong. And so they will have to hike. The question is how, how much more do they have left in the tank?
0: Terrific. Jamana, thank you for that. And don't miss decision time with Jamana and Juliana. That's uh, 11.55 BST. We'll bring you Jamana's interview with Governor Andrew Bailey at 1600 BST. And still to come, revenue and orders are up at Billfinger. We'll discuss the first quarter results with the CEO, Thomas Schultz.
2: A podcast is a winner. I'm told it's an absolutely super-duper podcast, even though we haven't finished recording it yet. Uh, For more on the US inflation numbers, as well as the latest market action, check out the aforementioned Squawk Box podcast. Disney has reported $21.82 billion in revenue for the first quarter and an EPS of 93 cents per share, both in line with analyst expectations. But Disney's streaming service lost 4 million subscribers from January to March. But price increases helped improve performance and reduce streaming losses by $400 million. The House of Mouse saw double-digit growth at its theme parks, whilst revenue at its linear TV networks was down 7% on an annual basis. The shares fell 4% in after-hours trading. CEO Bob Iger has been overseeing a broad restructuring since returning to the company and discussed the progress after the results.
1: I've been back at the company for almost six months, and in that time, we've embarked on a significant transformation to strategically realign Disney for sustained growth and success. I'm pleased to say that the strategy we detailed last quarter is working. Our new organizational structure is returning authority and accountability to our creative leaders, as well as allowing for a more efficient, coordinated, and streamlined approach to our operations. The cost-cutting initiatives I announced last quarter are well underway, and we are on track to meet or exceed our target of $5.5 billion.
2: Now, there's an excellent article on cnbc.com, which I was pointing out to Jeff actually, by uh, Alex Sherman, uh, on the streaming strategies. Uh, be sure to check it out on cnbc.com. Did you, did you have a look at the article I read? I, you... I think it's a terrific article. Okay, Mayor Culper, you told me about the article, and I think it's brilliant. It's a great article. Well, it's a story that we've been kicking around
0: for yeah. a long time, isn't it? Is, is there a point at which people are going to start, um, you know, stopping some of their Cutting subscriptions? calls on streaming, for the better. Right, them, a way, right. Yeah. and it goes back to the Brian Chesky uh, comment yeah, about you yeah. know is there increased price sensitivity in now and and when you look at the Disney numbers it, it is clear that there are some issues with the ARPU at the yeah, moment just, and the reduction in subscribers. I was just
2: thinking about the Sedgwick household right. yeah I kind of had a bit of team meeting and said kind of you know which one are we gonna cut then come on we need to budget a little bit like nah what about that one no we're not cutting that one what about no we're not cutting that I was like I just forlornly I went back into my cave and just I did some more accounting right, back to men and motors
0: <laughs> um bill finger has reported over 1 billion euros in revenue for the first quarter up 12 percent on the year the german engineering group saw orders increase 26 percent and reconfirmed its full year guidance for 2023 thomas schultz joins us the ceo of bill finger thomas nice to have you back with us on the program here um, Numbers look terrific. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about current trading here. Are there any concerns as we appear to be moving into a weaker economic environment that some of these orders are going to get cancelled?
3: No, not for us. We see all the markets and all products and all the regions actually growing. You saw with, as you said, 26% on order intake, 12% in invoicing looks quite good. And we see clearly what we budgeted for this year and forecasted fully fulfilled so we don't change our outlook.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. So, so can you hold the margin uh, going forward? Uh, we, we've been talking a lot about inflationary pressures here, and we understand um, that not only the United States has an issue, Europe clearly is still grappling with bringing down pricing pressures. Tell us a little bit more about the impact on Billfinger.
3: Yeah. The, at first, we have to say that the demand for efficiency and sustainability is actually rising. Yes, the inflation is there too. It's still there. It goes down in some parts, actually quite quick, but it's still there. And we are able to transfer that to our clients. That is possible for us.
2: Thomas, really nice to see you today. Look, there was a lot in your statement, the seven pages, I've read, and I read this sentence, and I'll read it to our viewers because I think it's important. Amongst other measures, the U.S. business is being repositioned towards more service offerings to reduce the impact of volatile project business. I thought that was very illuminating. And can you expand upon the benefits of services versus the project side of things as well? Because I know what I think you mean, but I actually want to hear it from you.
3: It is fairly simple to say. We have still in our North American business old construction business out of the old Bilfinger Burger time. And that is what we would like to get rid of. And we will do that this year. And that, of course, costs money. On the other side, we see a significant, significant increased demand for industrial service to help our clients in North America to get more efficient and to get more sustainable.
2: Yeah, And that is very simple. But is it just also the fact that the margins you can make on a service side of things rather than the unpredictability of the costs on projects uh, is just disproportionate? And that's why the shift goes to services from projects.
3: It is actually a little bit more granular. The industrial service, when you offer efficiency and sustainability, the amount of other companies who can quote on the same and having the same competence is fairly limited. When you look into that regular construction business, the amount of com- competition is quite high, which means profitability and risk is higher. So from that point of view, the service and frame agreements, where we have very good profitability in Europe and in the Middle East, actually we will repeat in North America too.
2: Thomas, um, we're continually working out the best place for the big European corporate such as yourself to allocate capital. You only have a limited amount of capital, even at a big company like your own as well. Is Europe doing enough to attract that capital for project investment and for service investment compared with those other two regions you just mentioned, the Middle Middle East, the U.S. and, dare I say, Asia as well?
3: Yeah, the the big advantage of North America, for example, is the fast decision making. That is what we see in Europe, of course, and some parts of Europe actually lagging quite behind. If you have a faster decision-making, then the whole environment to invest is, of course, by far more positive. Overregulation in Europe is a big blockage. Unsustainable, more critical, more permanent change in politics for the industry, like in Europe, is not helping investments. And we see a clear move out of some of the industries, out of Europe, into, for example, North America.
0: And Thomas, um, let me ask you about uh, uh, the cost of living crisis, because uh, I note that um, some Bill Finger employees will be uh, taking industrial action on offshore platforms as part of the uh, Unite Unions activities here in the UK. But we've seen industrial strife across continental Europe. Do you think that we are... Anywhere close to a a turning point of this story? Or do you anticipate that we will see these industrial disputes continue?
3: At first, the disputes is a result out of the high inflation and increased costs. And not to forget uncertainty, what the people feel on each individual. Open the newspaper, listen to your own broadcasting. There's a lot of, let's say, uncertainty for the future out. And people see that, people feel that, and they would like to get remunerated in a proper way. On the other side, we as a company, we have then to talk with our clients. What is possible? What can we increase in prices, in costs, etc., to make that happen? So important in that situation is, A, that the companies are talking with their employees and their customers and being completely honest how the situation is, and B, that the politics are supporting in doing less uncertainty into the market, less overregulation into the market.
0: Will you, will you be increasing the salaries for those 700 workers on offshore platforms who are striking today?
3: So I will not give a comment per single country because we are more in more than 25 countries and it's from country to country different. But we are in all countries in discussion with our employees and it's their right to put up their demand and it's our right to explain what we can do and what not.